a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture. Not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by Jamie Jones and not Peggy Schaefer today because we are at INS in Boston. So and she wouldn't come. She wouldn't come. She refused. So, by the way, you need to say what INS is. The International Neuropsychological Society Conference. Yes, and Peggy said, I'm not a neuropsychologist. Why would I want to go in bo- to Boston in February? A good question, mind you. It is a very good question, which I understand. So we are being joined, and so we're doing a little bit of a different recording approach as opposed <laughs> for to... A, for a couple of reasons. <laughs> so as opposed to um, having individual microphones in front of everybody with and... Coffee. Yeah, managing that. We have one microphone and we're doing a group recording. And so we're going to have to deal with that. And so currently we are joined by Christine Clancy. Say hi. Hi. Neuropsychologist. And Chris Madan. Hi. Neuroscientist. And we're particularly interested in talking with Chris Madan about his work and having a conversation about reward and about the intersection of clinical work and uh, research. So let's start just talking about that, shall we? Sounds okay. good. But first, I think Chris should introduce himself and tell everybody a little bit about the postdoctoral fellowship he's doing um, and his areas of research. Okay. So again, my name is Christopher Medan. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Boston College. And here I'm working with Dr. Elizabeth Kensinger, and my work here and kind of what her lab is about is looking at how we, uh, how we remember emotional experiences, um, and we look at this using kind of cognitive psychology approaches, as well as using imaging techniques in neuroscience to see actually which brain regions are being involved and how that relates to behavior. Um, we also do some work with aging, so having younger adults and older adults like showing them emotional words and images and seeing how they remember and and process these things and how aging might affect that. A um, little bit outside of my work, but we also like in our lab do some some work with sleep and how sleep influences these processes. Uh, so that's that's what I'm doing here. Though I guess given the topic of reward processing, uh, not what I'm doing in my postdoc, but some of the work that I did during my PhD at the University of Alberta and still ongoing work that I'm involved in, I've been looking at how reward influences memory and kind of related decisions, and to some degree the implications of this to pathological gambling in kind of an extreme um, maladaptive state of how this might work. Um, I don't... Now, are, are you looking at pathological gambling in general? Are you looking at it in specific to, uh, say, for example, pathological gambling in Parkinson's? Or what? Are you looking at both or just... So I guess more any of that side of it is more implications. So really we're looking at healthy adults. So most of our subjects are undergraduate psychology students. Sometimes we recruit kind of from the the community sample in a sense and not students per se, but still healthy individuals. And then the, the implications to pathological gambling are more kind of, if this was kind of an extreme case, how would it, how could it be relevant in that? But really, our, our focus is in the healthy functioning, mm-hmm. and then the implications and um, kind of bigger picture go into, to some degree with Parkinson's, where we've been looking into that as a collaboration, but that's still not really off the ground. Right. Um, we've done some imaging work to, to actually see like brain regions like the striatum 
and like medial temporal lobe in terms of how memory might influence this type of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but that's still the not really looking at it clinically directly, but more of that's a future direction that we're interested in and cool. what we we'll work with others to do. So tell us a little bit about what you found. So I guess kind of stepping back a bit to before I was involved with this research and some degree why I think it's cool. So if we ask a person like in gambling kind of scenario, would you rather have a guaranteed like 100% chance that you can have $20 or a 50-50 chance that you'll get either $40 or nothing? So if you kind of made this choice repeatedly and had lots of options, someone smart should figure out that on average, these are equally good options. Mm -hmm. So it's more about a preference. Like there isn't a right answer. It's just what would right. you prefer? So in this type of a question, which is related to like Daniel Kahneman's Nobel work and that's like, it starts from that with gains. So like if it's a winning and kind of getting this as like free money, most people will be risk averse and take the guaranteed 20 and just be happy with that. Right. Now, if you force them that they have to make a choice of, would you rather lose $20, 100% chance, or 50-50 chance of losing $40 or nothing. So again, they're equally bad of options in an objective sense, but there are people who will be risk-seeking and take the gamble and hope that they won't lose anything, but they'll, they'll be more, more willing to take the risky option. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting and all, but the, the researchers that I work with who were doing some of this work before I started collaborating with them, uh, Marcia Spetch, who's a professor at the University of Alberta, mm -hmm. and Elliot Ludwig, who's now at the University of Warwick in the UK, they had found that, well, because they were, Marcia is a comparative psychology researcher, so her work is with humans, but also with non-human animals, and particularly pigeons. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to ask an animal this sort of question, you can't just, well, at least in most cases, hey, you can't hey, just say, come on, pigeon. Right. Come on, pigeon, you got 20 bucks, let's go. So you can't just <laughs> describe odds and probabilities and outcomes. It doesn't work the same. So what they were interested in is how this can be translated into this specific scenario of like, how do you communicate this sort of information to animals then, where right. learning is more through experience and not these described explicit probabilities and outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so through this work, first they tried to do... Um, versions that are kind of pigeon analogs of this of these studies and it didn't really work well but what they kind of converged on is there's an important effect of how the information is being communicated if you're making these decisions based on again these described explicit probabilities or if you're learning from experience you kind of have to think back to like we show you kind of these arbitrary words or shapes and they lead to outcomes on like learning through through over time and through feedback and seeing what you kind of prefer over time, mm -hmm. it's a you get different preferences. Mm -hmm. So in humans, using the this, this same kind of task where what we'd actually show is people images of doors. So there's two doors on a computer screen, they click one and then something's behind it. Either they'll get 20 points on one of those doors or getting zero or 40 with 50-50 kind of odds mm -hmm. on a different door. What do they tend to do? And the part that I find really cool is within the same subjects, and within kind of like alternating blocks of choices, we will find that for these described probabilities, people, humans, will be um, risk averse for gains, risk seeking for losses, like I described earlier, for the described odds. But when it's learned through experience, it'll flip. They'll be relatively more risk seeking for gains and more risk averse for the losses. And that's basically the opposite behavior mm -hmm. in the same people. And like, right. we've also found the same 
pattern for this experience-based choices in pigeons as well in more recent work, but clearly it's a different kind of processing. Like there's still effectively like if you were to articulate it and I guess tell the subject they're the same odds and the exact same, like it is the same scenario. Mm -hmm. But in one case you're learning from feedback and through this experience and it's a different type of, we're getting different patterns in these risk preferences. Mm -hmm. And how is like, what's different in terms of let's say the brain and how the information is actually being processed that leads to effectively the same information leading to a different choice behavior. Right. Based on previous experience. Right. Basically. Right. So myself, I'm more of, a, I'll say, a memory researcher. Mm -hmm. So obviously one of these cases, you're given all the information you need in kind of that instance and that's all you need. Mm -hmm. But in the other case, you have to kind of, maybe not consciously per se, but you have to draw from these previous experiences, which is effectively memory. Mm -hmm. And like these doors themselves, they're arbitrary and like we counterbalance like, which specific door image is with each of these outcomes. Mm -hmm. So they're not indicative of the reward value. You have to learn from prior experiences mm -hmm. and basically the role of memory in this. Right. And what we'd found is if we ask people after they do the same kind of task that I just described with these doors and these outcomes, we show them one of the doors and say, what's the first outcome that comes to mind for one of the ones that led to different outcomes. So it led to, let's say, gaining zero or 40 points or the same thing in the lost domain, most of the subjects will give the extreme one as the thing that's more mem like the thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So in, with the values I've kind of just used, they'll say the plus 40 and the minus 40, more often than they'll say the zero outcomes. Right. We have done other kind of variants in terms of the, the numbers, so that it's not like zero is a weird number itself per se, like we've had it just like everything is a gain and 80 and zero are the numbers, like shift all the numbers up by 40. Mm -hmm. So. It's not like zero is the thing that's driving this, but the most extreme outcomes are the ones that are more memorable. And that's actually, at least like through correlational analyses and through um, large, subject, large groups of subjects, we've found that's what seems to be driving this behavior. That the most extreme outcomes that you experience, either gains or losses or whatever, those are more memorable. Now, if you, and there, and there is variance across individuals. Right. So if a particular person has more of this tendency that let's say the gains are more memorable and they think they're winning more than they really are, then you should be risk seeking for gains and relatively risk averse for losses if you think that happens more often. Mm -hmm. And to some degree that would drive you to gamble if you think those extremes happen more often and your kind of estimation of how, how these events actually occur is skewed in a kind of extreme case relative to the healthy population, mm -hmm. you should be gambling to some degree. Not that it's a healthy thing per se. Well, it's not. Um, like at least when you get to pathological gambling. Right. But it kind of makes sense that if you don't understand the odds as being 50-50, but being like 70-30, that the better outcome happens more often than the relatively worse outcome, then you should gamble because you objectively, I guess subjectively, <clears throat> think that that's the better outcome, that it pays off more than the kind of more balanced one. Right. And... I get one, one kind of direction of this research is to look into that with kind of, again, from the healthy population, there are questionnaires that are meant to assess um, kind of gambling behavior, like mm -hmm. in the real world kind of gambling behavior through self-report and see how that relates to how they do this kind of experimental task. Right. And another future direction is to get um, like Parkinson's patients who are on dopamine agonists and mm -hmm. 
it, it obviously and helps. And develop pathological gambling. Right. It's, like it's, it's good for them in terms of voter behavior. Right. But I guess it's somewhat more accepted now, but still not as much that there also are cognitive implications and it changes reward processing in like these decision-making type tasks, not right. just in the motor like movement and tremors, but it's kind of intended to treat. Right. But it's, you're basically just washing dopamine throughout the whole brain, not in kind of a tonic where it's supposed to be, you know, like making motor right. movements and walking. And that influences other systems that it, like isn't intended to. Right. And then that's but something well, that if you think about the dopamine has both um, an ability to increase release of behavior and increase suppression of behavior depending on where it's being right. used in the system. Um, the other thing I was thinking about in terms of, of this research is about reward mm-hmm. in general. One, you know, the, the profound sort of lack of consistency in terms of how people understand what reward right. is and you know, is reward also always pleasurable or is reward about this worked? Right. So I'm going to do it again. Right. Which I think from our, you know, with the, the Jamie and I are clinicians and Christine's a clinician. Are you asking if reward is an obsessive compulsive thing? Well, no, just that, that the understanding of reward tends to be as something that's seen as a quote unquote positive, like, oh, it feels right. good or... Right. Oh, I liked this, and that's not necessarily true. Right, I'm thinking about it more in an, an obsessive way, where you're or it's a held Well, it's a prediction thing to do something. Right, and this it's worked. not necessarily positive. Yeah, it worked, so I'm going to do yeah. it again. Right, um, which is a little bit different, and also thinking in terms of you know multicultural applications. Um, one of the problems with some of the studies about you know will you you know take this little object now or take multiple objects later well right. part of that is a sociocultural piece if you grow up in a an environment where you don't have a an experience of understanding that you're going to get something later you're going to take the thing that's the now right so basically instant now. gratification right. and delayed discounting is kind of one like academic kind of phrase exactly. of right. what what it's that an is. academic phrase and oftentimes right. it's used without I think without an understanding of the cultural implications of this and the right. um, the ways in which different communities are not they, they don't receive the same kind of of expectations. For example, they can't have the same kind of expectations right. that that majority communities can, and so it's it doesn't have the same kind of meaning right. across those. Um, but I also think the interesting thing about what Chris was just saying is this notion of when you make decisions based on abstract hypothetical experiences or experiences mm-hmm. like data, you make very different decisions than when you make decisions based on memory. Right. right. Because from a memory perspective, we tend to remember the most extreme. And also like the most recent. Like right. When they make those risky choices, it is a sequential thing that occurs over time. Mm-hmm. And knowing what, like, if it was the zero or the 40, like, what happened on the previous time that they chose it and it resolved to be one of those two outcomes is predictive of what they'll do in the future. Mm-hmm. And not just like one trial or whatever back, but several of them, like they're, they have predictive value. Mm-hmm. So it's not, basically we don't have, I guess as a memory researcher, one of the things I kind of start with sometimes is we don't have a perfect memory of our experiences. Right. There are a lot of biases in just how memory functions 
that makes some things more memorable than others. Right. And that's kind of broadly what I'm interested in is what makes some experiences more memorable. Right. And that's why I study reward and emotion and also motor processing in that these are all kind of salient biological things that influence our behavior right. and taking a kind of broader approach to look for a coherent thing across them all. Because like you were saying, like, what is reward to some degree? And you were describing it, kind of like, I guess, partly as in what some people think, like not necessarily right. your view per se, but that pleasure is there. Right. But yeah, also, that's not my thing. Well, right. I'm just going to go with, like, in terms of emotion literature, which is, like, at least emotion and memory is a more developed literature than reward and memory. Right. One important kind of dimension of emotion research and, like, what they study is valence and pleasantness versus unpleasantness. Right. And then to some degree, depending on the research question, but is it really a reward effect or emotion or some mixture that is somewhat being understated usually because the researchers tend to focus more on one than the other. Right. But Depending how, on the question. Right. right. But in terms of the real goal is to understand behavior, at least mm -hmm. I would think that is, then we shouldn't just be subscribing to, let's look at emotion constructs and how that right. works because real behavior is more complicated than that and... Like, if you're doing imaging, are you looking at, like, amygdala or a striatum? Or like, what, what do right. you look at in terms of the brain to explain this behavior? Needs to be a bit more holistic as the brain, as a network of all these regions that summate into some sort of behavior. Right. Rather than, this is our very targeted hypothesis. Like, it's important to have that to some degree. But behavior in the brain and human just aren't that simple. Right. Well, and also, with Jamie is a, is a trauma specialist. And so part of her focus is on looking at traumatic memories, right? right. So, so part of what, what, what you do, Chris, is focusing on what, how, you know, the emotional valence and how that affects memory. Right. And so one of the things that's really interesting to think about is there's positive valence, but there's also negative valence, right? right? And so when you're looking at PTSD, you're looking at trauma. Those are not pleasant at, things. Right, they're not pleasant things. However, they do absolutely become very encoded and right. become part of, of memory function and how do you deal with that piece so I think right. you know that's something that's also really interesting to think about in terms mm -hmm. of emotional valence and memory and positive versus negative valence and right. how those things get get encoded and also sort of what do you do with them right and I think with pigeons like when you're looking, like like ethology I think mm -hmm. is really interesting in looking at it cross-species stuff we can we can look at how pigeons remember things but when you think about well how do pigeons record like emotional valence right like, how do you understand like negative versus positive as emotional far as valence? i know no one has really done that at least with pigeons like with rats and more well i guess then they can say here's a food stimulus here's right. shock like that level sure but i guess in terms of humans we tend to use words and images to evoke emotions like right. there are obviously some things right. that use shocks and like heat pads and aversive kind of more biological in a sense um stimuli but with pigeons i don't think anyone's like use images of like a pigeon that is bleeding and things right and seeing. <laughs> I don't, honestly i think that'd be really interesting to i do. think it would be yeah but i don't think anyone's like like, with humans, again, there's standard kind of stimuli of these are images that emotion researchers use. Right, right. And that likely cannot be used as is with pigeons because right. just how they're designed. But I don't see any reason why it couldn't be done. And, again, another way to see how biologically, like, is it across species and looking mm -hmm. for those commonalities to understand how behavior works and 
how, how general and fundamental these are versus say like there are cultural differences right. Right. and separating them to some degree by looking at something that's just very different and seeing what permeates across all of these groups right. versus what's more like in, in kind of North American and that kind of like Western culture, what's different than Eastern. Sure, there'll be differences, but then also seeing what's just kind of permeating across everything. Right. So I think now's a good time to take a break. Hello, and welcome back to NeuroCurious. We took a break, and in the meantime, we have been joined by our esteemed colleague, Jennifer Cass, who is delightful and hugely shy about doing podcasts. So we're going to talk to her a little bit about what she does and then just talk in general about, you know, intersectional stuff. So, Jen, tell us just a little bit about, you know, where you work, what you do. All right. I am a clinical neuropsychologist, pediatric neuropsychologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Nationwide is on your side. Yes, we are on your side. (laughs) We are agile and innovative. And you we're are. One, we're one team. And you have a beautiful freaking hospital. We do have so a pretty gorgeous. amazing hospital. I've been there since 2002. So yep. I've been a fellow there um, for two years and stayed on and been a psychologist there since 2004. And um, do, you know, kind of like all of us, juggle a lot of different stuff. Um, do clinical work. We have a pretty generalist service, so I see a wide range of kids, but I do kind of focus on seeing some of our um, epilepsy surgery candidates, kids with 22Q deletion syndrome, um, kind of doing some program development with cardiology with our kind of neurodevelopmental outcomes program, um, do a little bit with cochlear implant and hearing impaired kids, um, and then supervision and training. So we have uh accredited APA accredited internship program I think we have about 12 interns across the institution now so we have four currently in our department and then we have um, postdoctoral fellows and occasionally an extern and then a big part of my job is kind of administrative stuff with program development but also just making sure things kind of run smoothly shit gets done hopefully yeah it's challenging sometimes yeah well and and the stuff that you guys do is deeply interesting because you do a lot of really important application work of stuff that gets worked on from a research perspective so cochlear implants in particular is super interesting the cardiology stuff so what are Mm -hmm. the cardiology cases that you tend to sort of well that's a really newly development a new, newly developed service. So, um, you know, historically, uh, our, we weren't getting very many referrals at all from cardiology. When I look at our 2014 data, I mean, I think less than 10 kids were referred to us, but they're at very high risk. And we see a very high volume of those kids in our institution. Um, and just even through adulthood, we have a adult program that follows, I think, over a thousand adults mm-hmm. um, with significant congenital heart defects, um, single ventricle kinds of things. So it's a very, it's a very new initiative, um, kind of working closely with 
um, two of the physicians over in cardiology and really trying to, um, you know, we have a protocol set up that the kids are getting Baileys at different ages. Um, but then also trying to set up like an interdisciplinary, like transdisciplinary um, clinic for kids ages three and probably every three years thereafter where they're going to be able to see, you know, um, neuropsychology and pediatric psychology to, you know, kind of look at their neurocognitive risks, their learning um, difficulties, their psychosocial risk, mood, behavior, but then, um, you know, certainly seeing the cardiologist, um, you know, because I think this whole initiative, we're, the cardiology group is so large that medically everybody wasn't necessarily having the same pathway of care for all right. these kids. So they're standardizing all the different medical interventions and tests that they're doing at different time points. Um, and then I think we're going to do some kind of have physical therapy there and look at kind of exercise tolerance and, and all those kinds of things too. So that'll give us a chance to catch these kids at age three. And then hopefully, you know, we want to catch them before kindergarten entry and then at certain time points later on, but it's very new. Yeah. So we haven't gotten to that point. Yeah. It's super exciting. Um, one of the things we were talking about earlier is the intersection of kind of research stuff and then clinical application. Um, so I was thinking about all the stuff that Nationwide does and how there is a really nice kind of intersection there in terms of research work that's being done and then trying to do application with the clinical population there. Um, it makes me think about the cochlear implant stuff and like what at, at INS we are talking we are watching um, Pas Pascual Leon mm. doing his work on sort of looking at brain networks and substitution basically of sensory mm -hmm. kinds of things and it made me wonder about how kind of how that's being thought about in terms of, of cochlear implants you know anything about that or you know it's interesting because I should have had that thought during that talk, but I didn't. Because <laughs> um, it was that's because really, you weren't hung over enough. Well, before it, because right. you know they were talking to you know a lot about blindness and visual mm -hmm. impairment mm -hmm. and um, you know fascinating stuff, right? Where uh, people that are blind are, are if I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, but we're um, recruiting areas of visual cortex as they were reading braille and things like that and the impact when um you know like for example that woman had that bilateral occipital stroke, stroke thing, and then right. she couldn't she couldn't process the you know read the braille fluently anymore you know i don't i don't know what's going on in, in those areas you know it's um it's there interesting is a, yeah it's very interesting, interesting there, there isn't necessarily you know you know neuroimaging um in that population is more difficult because, you know, there's certain implants that you can't put the kid in them, right? Scanner and, right. you know, that's oh, kind of changing, point. but, um, you know, it's interesting because I think there are, there could be a lot more, I mean, I hate this word, but synergies between the research side and the clinical side. And I, I still feel like I will, we still truly are a little bit siloed even within our own hospital. And that's starting to change more. But, um, you know, for example, there's a lot of intervention work being done in traumatic brain injury. You know, Sherry Wade's work down in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. 
we're not necessarily implementing a lot of that on the clinical side, but that's kind of the direction we want to go. So thinking about like family support um, and just, you know, she has some kind of more computerized telehealth kinds of things that we could implement. Um, you know, she's done some stuff with like a parent-child interaction therapy kind of stuff with parents of kids with traumatic brain injury and done it, you know, by telehealth, mm -hmm. by Skype. So I was like a therapist for that study. So, um, you know, those are directions that we really need to go into and incorporate that clinically oh, yeah. into what we do. For sure. Yeah. Can I ask you a bit of a naive question? Sure. So just like on a broad level, I do research with healthy individuals and just how on a like cognitive psychology level, how things work in the brain. So you were saying that at your institute, the, there's the new congenital heart research, mm -hmm. and obviously you're here for INS. So how, how does that with heart defects obviously that's not a good thing but how does that tie into neuropsychology which is more cognitive and the brain and obviously it's right. a different so I, I mean with that population there there are kind of prenatal perinatal and surgical related right. risks so so these kids have multiple brain insults over right. time so okay. so there's genetic risk um so some of the kids with the most complex congenital heart um, conditions, disorders, have um, significant genetic conditions that also we know from research have difference in brain anatomy and function. So like 22Q deletion syndrome, those kids, there's a lot of um, stuff looking at reduced you know, white matter volumes or different gray matter volumes. Um, they have a like they have kind of a modal neurocognitive profile. Now, not every kid doesn't fall into that, but right. like they tend to have more deficits in nonverbal, visual, spatial, visual motor, okay. attention, executive function. Kind of what it, almost like when you think of more like what a white matter okay. kind of dysfunction looks like. So they have that, and that's kind of prenatal or genetic risk. Right. And then perinatal, you know, when your heart's not working well, you're at much higher risk for like hypoxic ischemic kind of events and right. stroke and things like that. And then when they actually go in and do the surgery, you're at much higher risk for stroke than two. So they like have, can have these multiple right. risks across. So then we look at, you know, kind of their cognitive function and, you know, look at their psychosocial outcomes. And, and you know, there's certainly a parenting huge piece too of the right. environment. Like, you know, you have what can the kid. environment do to help support somebody right. who's got multiple areas of risk? Right, and just, you know, you're going to be protective of your kid if you're a parent. And, you know, um, I don't know, you hear stories of, you know, kids, you know, they're running and then they're turning blue or something. Right. So okay. it's like you don't want your child to go out into the environment or you don't want them to go out because they're going to, you know, go to daycare or something and get right. a bunch of infections and, and they're already super medically complicated. So you have that right. whole piece too. Right. Okay. All right. So mm -hmm. the impact of their social functioning, you know, because of their condition and their parents' reaction to their condition. Right. Right. Well, and then the, the psychosocial element and the cultural element and what is the sociocultural environment that they're placed within and how much support do they have in their school environment and their preschool environment Right. I mean, those are things that are all super relevant in terms of right. how to then support the kid as they're developing. And, you know, like I'm by no means any expert on the research literature in that area, but I, my, my guess is that it really hasn't gotten to the point, like in some of the traumatic brain injury literature, you can really look at um, 
what are your medical risk factors, your psychosocial risk factors? We know that there are moderators for those things where if you're, you know, have a severe TBI in the context of family disadvantage or um, right. high, you know, lower SCS or things like that, you're, you're, you might have a worse outcome for certain domains. Right. So you might have increased behavior problems over time or something like that. Like we, I don't think we're really at that point with that literature right. to, to really parcel out, you know, and I imagine it, it, it's very similar to some of the other neurological conditions, like right. prematurity has some of that literature too. So. Right, right, right. But I think, you know, I was sort of struck when you said, you know, that you know, for so many years the cardiology program didn't even think to include neuropsychology, right, which obviously as a neuropsychologist, that's a no-brainer to me. And for all right. the things you mentioned, it's like all the genetic risk factors, mm-hmm. the risk factors of having a cardiac problem, you know, for hypoxia and all those other things. I think it just sort of speaks to the fact that we all kind of live in our own little island and there isn't the intersection. Right. Right. And, and, and there should be. And there should be. Right. So I'm excited that you're doing that, but it's yeah. interesting that it's 2015 and it's starting. 16. 16. 16. <laughs> yeah. 16. Well, I just I, wish it was 15. <laughs> and it's interesting because it makes me think, I mean, really what's on my mind right now is how can we grow and develop and see more kids and do a better job seeing more kids, I guess. Right. And yeah, be efficient right. with our care and, and use our resources wisely. And and I think probably we haven't delved into some of those areas because historically, um, you know, since I've worked at the hospital, we have had probably the shortest wait list we've ever had was three months. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So and we've had probably at different times all the way up to nine to twelve month wait list. So that makes growing mm-hmm. And um, we're just managing what's right. coming in. Right. So when I look at our data, like 40% of our referrals are from neurology. We have right. a really great relationship with them. Um, our epilepsy, epilepsy by far is our number one diagnosis. To go to, you know, we're not doing anything with solid organ transplant right. pre-post. Right. Um, you know, like we have a bunch of people that specialize in like muscular dystrophy or Duchenne. That's right. um, a huge area. They're doing a lot of genomics, you know, kind of um, genetic kinds of related stuff, but research at our hospital, um, we don't, we don't do that. Um, so, so there's so many areas we can go into. So it's like, how do you, how if you, you build it, they're going to come and, right. and then you're going to say, build it? please, please oh refer God. to us, <laughs> but oh, sorry, we can't see you for a year. Right. So, right. Right. Oh, it's so frustrating. It's, it's that's such a well, and you know, I went over to the job board tonight, and there were like probably literally like eight more jobs on there that I weren't even on my radar for pediatric right. neuropsychologists. There are probably right. like at least fifteen jobs right now. Ah, uh, I mean, this is my thing. Like, I wish, like, I wish I could be a bajillionaire because I would I be. Too I know, like, I would be. <laughs> I think that's all I of be, us. I would be yeah. such a good patron of the arts and sciences and just giving money to people. You, you could have a wing at the hospital. I they totally. Do that. Like, yeah. I just, you could have a, a hospital named after you nationwide. Yeah. I know. It's on your side. I, it's on my side. And I... Like a dead budding hospital yeah. for, I don't know, it'd be like Zoolander. For everybody's like, Zoolander. Yeah. Like for, yeah. for, for kids read. that can't yeah. read or people I just, whatever that I, <laughs> I need to buy lottery tickets or something. <laughs> Well, and then it gets to the point of, like, how can you be more efficient with your care? And I feel like, you know, we're kind of old school sometimes, right? Yeah. So everybody comes in, and we have to do these hours of testing and these big batteries. And that, that's not where we're at, right? Right. How do you be so, more efficient in figuring out yeah. what do you do? How do you... 
I mean, this is the thing. I wish you were there today for um, Pascal Leon's talk on sort of the using quote-unquote non-invasive brain stimulation mm -hmm. in, uh, clinically, right, in, in terms of managing various symptom presentations and how do you understand the, the larger kind of network presentation of things to, to then intervene, right? How do you mm -hmm. figure out where to intervene? If you've got somebody who has an aphasia, you have somebody who has some kind of very specific presentation, how do you figure out what that, what the, what the underlying network is and then can you do something very specifically to impact intervention with that person? I mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting area, but it's also one that is so early on and is so in need of more information, but it's exciting to think about where it could go. So like they would do transcranial stimulation of like... Right, they'll do TMS. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're talking about, for example, people who have different kinds of non-fluent aphasias and where like, typically the areas of the brain that would be considered important, mm -hmm. right, like Broca or Zaria or whatever, and, but then look at the, the intersecting hubs and then figuring out, well, if you, if you intervene to either uh, improve or suppress function in that area, how is that going to mm -hmm. impact function? Right. So it's, it's basically making functional maps. So they actually have data on that? Yeah. yeah. Well, but it, it's tricky, yeah. right? So they have population data. Yeah, population so data. Like, and individual is, data is not population data. Right. They're different. Sure. And yeah. right. So then it's still time-consuming because you still have to, you know, take the population data but look at each individual patient mm -hmm. and figure out where their connections are. Right. So it's one of those, like, really exciting ideas, but how many years after? Right. How do you well, figure out yeah. that, that intersection between yeah. individual data and population data, which is the problem with a lot of the like current um, clinical application of certain kinds of functional imaging data. So see how I'm not talking about things specifically in terms of groups of people who right. sell things. But I mean, there, there's a problem, right? Well, how do you do that? Population data doesn't directly apply to individuals. Right. And well, and you think about pediatrics. I mean, it's a whole different thing. <laughs> well, right. right. Like you have, that. you know, you have a brain insult or injury at a very early age or prenatally, perinatally. Like you, you don't, you know, those, those lateralization, you know, that just doesn't, it doesn't hold So, you, you know, it's like you kind of have to do other functional imaging to even Absolutely. figure out like is this a kid with bilateral language or right, right. hemisphere or did, right. did the right. you know, language vibrate more posterior in the left hemisphere because right. they right. have right what's the what's the know? hub workout yeah. for this particular person and well, which is to me that's really is interesting but it's expensive like how many people right. it's not like you're going to go into your local pediatrician's office and say okay we're going to do functional imaging <laughs> figure out what the with the network orientation of this person is and how they're... How I, guess, they're I guess to some degree, it's a shift in what you can do with imaging. Right. Like, right. A lot of, again, from a research perspective, like pure basic research kind of side, it's been used to like, okay, we understand language processing or memory or maybe like memory with emotion, like some specific like cognitive level rather than about the individual. 
Right. Whereas it makes more sense when you're focusing on individuals who are effectively patients rather than healthy and we just want to see how like nuances and variability. Right. But if we're using it in more of a treatment way, then using imaging, like obviously it's an expensive tool, right. but to understand a specific individual and yes, you'd need some normative data to see like what ways are they performing in terms of as like right. language regions that are working as if they were normal and which ones are working different in terms of let's say being compensatory in relation to right. their right. kind of patient status. Right. And using that information to figure out how that should involve treatment and right. is this kind of a thing that is good or is this something that needs like some sort of like rehabilitation or therapeutic to, right. to shift because there are obviously like the point being patient yeah. related right well, that was that was what was so cool about Pasquale Leon's talk today okay. is he was talking about sort of the the intersection between like looking at functional imaging and how an individual patient's way of, say, using language and speech processing differs from the traditional right. way of doing things. And then how you can use TMS in particular to impact how that works right. in um, along with using speech and language intervention or whatever intervention okay. you might have. And then and then being able to do some research on, okay, so you do, you know, ten treatments of TMS in this particular area of the brain and along with this particular type of intervention, whether it be speech and language intervention or whatever, and then you see the change in, in functional outcome based on that. Right. So yeah, do they have data, data looking yeah. at like the interaction between those different types of yes. intervention and having like a synergistic kind yeah. of like yeah, not not yes. just like the parts together. Right. But, which okay. is to me, which is what's really interesting. And again, as somebody who's interested in more like neurologic music therapy and some of the more kind of movement based interventions that can be looked at very specifically and research specifically as opposed to the more kind of Broad Again, the broad type stuff. of like, ooh, jump around. Wow, that's super cool. Um, that th there are. Yeah. There well, and it's, you know, I mean, my, as, like, I loved his talk. I mean, he's a great yeah. speaker. He's a fabulous researcher. I mean, my frustration is always as a pediatric person that all of this data is for adults. Right. And doesn't downward apply to kids. Yeah. No. And so, and you know, and it's like, so. How do we, how do we look at this in a developing brain? Right. Well, even still, like, I wasn't at the actual talk, but going from one side of it, like with TMS, is it being used as a treatment or more of understanding the profile of this individual? Because, treatment. Treatment. Okay. I guess I so didn't it's think of that at, as a thing to some yeah. degree. So you're looking at, you're looking at applying, right, simulation right. to either improve somebody's function in an area or to impede it. But right. how long lasting, like, at least from what I know, TMS is in a sense relatively short in, yes, in the is. effect of yeah. how long that changes brain. Right, but that's what that's you're looking at plasticity, right? right? So you're looking at, so with this, this, this TMS study is sure. looking at repeated interventions along, so TMS interventions along with behavioral interventions and how they work together. Okay. To have a functional outcome. So, what kind of time scale? Like, how often would the, the so they're looking at what, what was it? Do you remember what so it was? The, like, the patient came in weekly. Okay, it was and ten. I, times? I think had ten weeks of treatment, and then they looked at outcomes three months and six months out. 
and there were positive outcomes six months out. And obviously, I guess the point being that the patient is a child, like is younger. It's an adult. Okay. Right. Okay. So we're interested in more the child, right? Within the developing brain from a neuroplasticity piece is okay. So that because and again, this was more focusing on cortical stuff. This wasn't focusing on looking at subcortical stuff, particularly cerebellar aspects of it. But if you're looking at a developing brain and how they manage different kinds of tasks, depending on how old they are and what's gone on with their development, um, like to me, this is very, this is a very potentially interesting area of research where you can look at, okay, so do you look at, um, doing a stimulation piece that is increasing areas over impeding areas and and then combining it with interventions and what's going to be more effective for functional outcome is doing stuff that's going to increase function in a certain brain area and then doing that or that's going to impede I, I, so I just think it's really cool that I never, I, again, as a basic researcher, I haven't thought of the TMS as basically a therapeutic or rehabilitation yeah. Yeah. Tr- and it, intervention. It's really interesting. That and also TDES. Right. So I guess I, I know, I have, again, I've read of some work of TDCS and depression, mm-hmm. but right. as the literature would be in kind of as what I said, that, as I would have read then too, is that's all with basically adult population. Right, it is. And in terms of like synaptic plasticity and the, like the developing brain, if anything, whatever these effects are should be like, they may be different to some degree, but they should be more effective in terms of changing the developmental trajectory right. relative to an, like a, an adult that right. is more kind of set at that point. Right. Which is why than the child's, which is why I jump up and down about right. this going, gosh, wow. Wouldn't it be useful for us to understand more yeah. about this, you know? And because it's really Fascinating. One of the things I really like about Nick Davies, you know Nick, Nick Davies' work? I know of him. That um, he's also, one of the things I like about him is that he's very thoughtful and cautious about, okay, you know, we call this non-invasive brain stimulation, but that's not really true. I mean, it's non-invasive in that we're not drilling holes in your skull. Which but is in, definitely invasive. Right. Well, yeah, but, it's but it's not non-invasive right. because you are actually... Yeah, you right. don't really know. I mean, if right. you repeatedly stimulate a certain area, I mean, you you, you really have no idea what that outcome is going to be right. like um, in an adult versus a kid. Right. Maybe Absolutely. maybe it would have negative consequences. Um, I don't know. Right. Well, and it's it's non-invasive only from a surgeon's perspective. Sure. Right. It's like I'm not opening your skull. It's non-invasive. Right. Right. You know, but, and clearly it, it is. But it is invasive in terms of changing. You well, know, and, and very directly. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, another concern that I had in listening is, you know, that clearly this is a very specific intervention. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pasquale Leon talked a lot about, like, making sure you're doing the intervention at the right, right. location. The, okay. the, the, right. the localization piece is right. hugely important is huge, and very individualized. Which then you. makes me nervous about the types of people that would be inclined to sort of mass market, let's do... TMS for everybody with depression. Right. right. Put a skull cap on you, and and then, you know, like Jen said, God knows what we're doing. Right. It's like, and it cures autism. It cures right. depression right. Yeah, and, and ADHD and right. And grow toenails. And grow toenails. Right. So so I think 
I think it's a very exciting on the one hand, but it's also really worrisome on the other hand in terms of the ethics. So right. how do they localize it? Well, this is well. They they use um, combination of fMRI yeah, and also right. yeah. um, I'm having word finding problems because it's late at night. But the the image like video. Oh, I can't remember what it was called. I'm so sad. Anyway, but but there like there's ways of of using. You can you can localize things pretty specifically, and then yeah, I mean they were, they were doing time series fMRI, which yeah. is like really cool right. and really expensive. So right. your, yes. your your neighborhood practitioner is not going to have right. access. And to even otherwise, like, even if like the institute has access to clinical MRI scanners, there's also in terms of treatment of this specific individual right. versus research of like how language processing or whichever right. process works in a general sense. Those are different in that, like, can we really, from an expense point, practically, like, yes, we booked you for an hour and we'll do all these analyses and process that data in right. terms of treatment. Like, right. that's not how things currently work, at least. Right. Well, and this is what's concerning to me in terms of because we live in a capitalistic society and we know that capitalism is the devil, but that's what we have to live with currently. But, but then we also have people who want to market these sort of broad-based you know, right. D, DIY brain yeah. stimulation thing. So, hey, you're gonna your kid, you're gonna cure your kid's autism, and you just put this little thing on your head, and it's gonna right. And the reality is that the individual differences are real, and that those networks, like I do think that the network stuff is really <clears throat> useful mm-hmm. and and important. But also the, the different hubs and how they interrelate are very specific to the individual. Right. I mean, and so you can't just intervene globally in no. a in any particular area and you think need to that understand that's the work. difference between population data and individual data. Right. Right. And one of the things I was kind of you know smugly, sarcastically, too much wine, thinking to myself during the talk was, wonder what this one patient's treatment bill was. Right. Like, like how many thousands of dollars, you know, was spent on this guy right. who had the FMRI. Well, that's when you think about, right. like, how much does that intervention interact with the behavioral intervention that is much cheaper and are, do you really have right. that clinically significant of an improvement? Right. Like, are outcome? we actually bringing right. efficacy in terms of treatment right. of, and, and like, with right. that component? And, and, right. Right. They clearly, he clearly talked about... TMS in combination with speech and language therapy, mm-hmm. right? right. Okay. And didn't talk. And about didn't talk. About what was the, the speech and language therapy? Right. I guess the the right. baseline of part of that treatment, but not the full thing. Right. There were right. controls that had like no treatment or something, right. but just not the imaging portion that is making the thing much more expensive in terms of right. treatment. Right. right. And, and, and how, how much benefit did the TMS have right. above? Right. 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 And making and I do language. really believe that TMS or TBCS can definitely very positively influence behavioral interventions mm-hmm. but it still hasn't been clarified what those specific behavioral interventions are what the specific local localizations of the inter- right. the right and how those things are going to be synergistically applied i think right. it's very exciting and very um i think the the possibilities are wonderful mm-hmm. but i also think that it's not quite there yet and that 
my concern is that the people who are really into making money and creating consumer products will just leap ahead and start marketing products for massive amounts of money without any really good data supporting the specific things they're doing. And then people are going to end up spending lots and lots of money for things that may or may not work. Mm -hmm. And insurance companies are not going to pay for things that they don't see some evidence that there's like concrete... Right. Well, Workers. even on the broader level, like like we're the, we've been going thus far as with the patient population, and that makes sense within the context of INS. But like there are consumer kind of do-it-yourself TDCS systems oh, you can yeah. buy that are like for gamers that supposedly can improve your reaction time. And right. With what we've said thus far, you might think, okay, with clinical disorders and like that sort of patient population, there's individual differences and localization is important. But that still applies to kind of the healthy population as well. And what are you really buying? And if you're run, effectively running a current through your brain, is what TDCS is. Right. And it, it, it can be useful. Like the how much so and how it contributes above behavioral interventions is kind of what we're cautioning here. But if you're going to do this, then where, like, your brain's a complicated organ. What right. are you really doing? Right. There's the patient thing, and that's one thing in insurance and le- legitimate on that side. But it's also the quote-unquote normal control. Right, so that's still... And doing cognitive... Yeah. And, and gamers right. maybe don't shock your brain so briefly. Yeah, yeah, but, but no, this is really These true. Things are on the market, thing, one but... of the things Pascal Leon was talking about was that how... Actually, like, in a very close proximity, areas of the brain they stimulate were, you know, did improvement in function and very close by it impeded right yeah and right. so and it's very individualistic in terms of that so if you're right. just buying a mass marketed tdcs product One that you just stick on your head that, i mean that fits in what we're, your brain. yeah well, we're talking about that in terms of interactive metronome right. versus like neurologic music therapy right. is never true yeah that that it can actually be actively harmful and how do people navigate that in a way that's not going to harm them. Yeah. It's, it's the main thing is caution. We'll start with like obviously right. like some. I'm not going to say that there isn't such a thing that could be beneficial, but absolutely caution is important. And if you don't just run currents through your brain because it's supposed <laughs> to make you, even as a healthy individual, perform better than Coca-Cola yeah. used to have cocaine in it, and it, it was did. considered to be just a generally good thing to do. So improved your mood. Yeah, an energy level. Absolutely. Might have given you a heart attack along the way, but didn't Caution do that is important. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did they talk about anything with, um, so it sounds like they're really talking about like treatment of maybe aphasia and things like that. They were definitely yeah. focusing on aphasia right. in that so particular. So you're, you're trying to increase a function, you're trying to increase. Yeah, he was trying to. And looking at, like, did they look right? at anything like, I just was thinking, um. Like, what about people that have as part of their neurological disorder, like, really impulsive, disinhibited behavior? Like, did they look at anything that they're trying to reduce that? Yeah, I mean, that they, they were talking about basically inhibitory versus excitatory okay. areas, right? And so... Like, producing behavior Right, and so if you're looking... Decreasing so there are particular yeah. hubs that you can focus on that if you're looking at inhibitory areas, if you knock that out, right, 
then it's going to help with other things. So you have to pay attention to whether something is more of an inhibitory hub or an excitatory hub, knocking something out versus increasing it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And we don't currently have a clear enough mapping of excitatory versus inhibitory aspects of different hub and connections between hubs to know consistently whether you want to do you want to hit something that's going to be excitatory or you want to hit something that's going to knock it out right mm-hmm. and it's probably relevant what kind of behavior you're trying to actually influence exactly like in terms of again aphasia and language versus at least when you talk about um like trying to inhibit and executive function i think of like reward processing right and those are different things and maybe it is behavior relevant and what you're actually doing in terms of while you're doing this the stimulation manipulation, right. what the person is trying to process and but it's also what complicated. Yes. I mean it's like because working memory, like you've got you've got maintenance functions of working memory and you've got updating functions of right. working memory and you've got the things that that increase and decrease the maintenance functions and you've got things that increase and decrease the uh, updating functions and then right. you've got how the, those and they're 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 antagonistic kinds of systems that work together so if you're trying and they're to functionally hit them near each other in exactly the brain. well right exactly. like you right. know so you really do a functional lobotomy with somebody like you're trying to decrease their disinhibited right you know impulsive behavior and then you make them totally flat and right well no this is why with parkinson's it's no so hard right? 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 like you, you give know? somebody dopamine agonists yeah. with parkinson's and then a certain subset Oh my God! We've got pathological gambling all of a sudden, right? Hopefully, so, they, you've helped with the motor problems, but um, like it's yeah. not so local that you can it's like influence your, one. Your type motor of problems thing. are great because you're pulling that whole like thing right. on the on the jack. You just have more dopamine yeah. in the system, right. and like that's great. The patient's happy with their yeah motor everywhere. function and their family. Right. So so it's like yeah. So <laughs> so I mean that's one of the things that's challenging in terms of people understanding dopamine, right, and what it does because it's not just about woohoo. You know, there's yeah. like some excitatory aspects, some inhibitory aspects, and how do you kind of and how it influences behavior is not just one specific exactly. thing. It's it's complicated, and that's not great in terms of like okay, I want to know how this works. Complicated is not great of an answer, but it's also true. what it is. Like right, it just, it's also true. Something needs to be acknowledged and then figure out like okay, in terms of let's say future drug treatments, can we make ones that are more somehow like through how they're administered are they more local in terms of which regions they influence to be more motor versus kind of reward and gambling related. Right. That's not how it is right now, at least, but that's something that should be looked into more. Right. And also the genetics of it. So who right. are the people that are more likely, so who are, you know, have, have Parkinson's and because there is a subset of people with Parkinson's when they go on um, dopamine agonists, develop pathological gambling. Right. Not everybody. Right. right. So who are the people who are more likely to develop pathological gambling and how do we understand that in terms of sort of pre-morbid uh, vulnerabilities? Right. And so like those risk factors, that's important because if if we can kind of predict based on our like, existing research and more that should be done that some subset won't end up developing gambling problems, mm-hmm. then sure, here's dopamine agonists if we again, in a broader perspective, think that's a good treatment, then great. But for the subset that if we can kind of predict this as being an issue, make steps to like, maybe from a cognitive behavioral therapy, 
tell them like we think this might happen right through your family and you being aware of it and if it's kind of an extreme like it really is likely to happen then use a different treatment like at least or, in some cases or is there a way the dopamine agonist and some function of tms sure yeah together right might make it more likely that a person is able to have an optimal um, response to intervention right. where so they have a dopamine agonist and they also have TMS intervention that's going to knock out right. the parts that are going to be most likely to then contribute to the pathological gambling because again right. part of this is about tonic dopamine levels right, right? and so if you're going to have sort of differing if you have a tonic dopamine level and then you add to it and you've got the sort of up and up and down right of, of dopamine levels and whether that's going to more influence direct or indirect levels right that that could very possibly make a difference and to some degree like yeah. using the existing research that isn't as tied to the clinical practice as it should be like given what already exists at the very least like that's knowledge that should be drawn on to make more kind of patient individual based treatments right to like yes we can identify these risk factors that more can obviously be done, but what's already known isn't kind of, again, the interdisciplinary crosstalk right. of these approaches to just drawing from what is known right. to make better individualized treatments. Yes. Oh, very good point. All right, so it's getting late. So I think, I think we should just uh, talk about how we can reach everybody individually. So you. So I'm Chris Fidan. <laughs> um, again, I'm a postdoc at Boston College. My website is www.cmadan.com, and that's effectively my name. And all my research and contact information is there. I'm also on Twitter at, at cmadan, again, C-M-A-D-A-N, and you can find me through there. Yeah, and I highly recommend following him. And what about you, Jen Cass? I mean, you're sort of on Twitter. Not really, no. You're sort of. Maybe you should be now. Like no. after she, this. I'm getting has, on it. I'm getting on. I do yeah. have a Twitter. I don't. I never tweet. So. You don't. Yeah. But you follow yeah. people. And if someone messaged you, you maybe will respond to them. Yes. So, yeah. No. I what's your Twitter handle? Do you phone. remember it? Do you Do you remember your Twitter handle? I don't. Sorry. All right, we'll sorry. put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> but 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 Jennifer Cass is at where Nationwide Children's Hospital, Columbus, Ohio. Yep, and she's really amazing. And what about you? Me being Jamie, Jamie Jones, as you know, you can reach me at, at JamieBPhD, also at JamieJones.com, and at WeAreNeuroCurious at gmail.com, or you can reach me, Dr. Budding, and Peggy Schaefer. Yep. So, and I'm at Nebula63 on Twitter, and uh, I forget what my website is, but it's Deborah my name, Budding. Deborah Budding, yeah, DebraBudding.com. So um, we're going to stop here for now, and thank you for listening. All right. Thank you.